Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for an episode of Wusha Workshop, which we have not done in a long, 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 long time. Um, so we're, uh, we're, we're resurrecting an old uh, show on the channel, and we're starting with um, the Five Deadly Venoms. And apparently, I think, Joel, this was your first time seeing this, right? Am I mistaken, or have you uh, seen it before? I don't think I've seen it before. If I did, it was only once in a while ago. Uh, th this is one of those films, though, that if you've watched a lot of Wuxia, you watch this film and you're like, I swear I've seen this before. Because there's a little bit of Web of Death and there's a little bit of, um, what, what is that, uh, Great Warriors of China or whatever it's called. There's a little like, like there's a little bit of a lot of different Wuxia films in this film, you know. Uh, so yeah, I, it, it all seemed fresh when I was watching it, but I kept having that feeling where it's like, Jeez. Is, are we going to do this again? Oh, uh, so I think Joel froze. Um, we'll see if we can get him in there in a second. Uh, I mean, one thing I'll say while, while Joel is... Sorry about that. Are you, are you back, Joel? Yeah, no, I my connection was doing fine, and then all of a sudden it just died on me. Oh, okay, no worries. We so were talking just fine before the podcast, and then as soon as the podcast started, it was like... Nyeh. I have to wonder if it's the record... Well, we shouldn't dwell on it, because we might hit up another one of those moments, so... Uh, but I thought... I, I, I think you were saying something about how you had this feeling watching it. Um, wow, that's really bad. Well, that's really bad. It dropped me out again, dude. Are you back in? Yeah, no, I'm back in now. But, like, wow, that, that was bad. Right, we may have to reboot this. Yeah, we'll 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 see if we let's go for another five minutes. If we have another hiccup, we'll uh, we'll restart. Um, yeah, that was uh, oof. so. Yeah, sorry about that, folks. So, what were you saying? I was just saying, like, I had this nagging feeling the whole time that I'd seen it before, even though I don't think I have. It's a certain familiarity about it, you know. Well, also, this movie is like a landmark film, so it's one of those films that's like. Like you were saying, you you will see this in a lot of other movies since this time because it was you know it's it, it, I mean it's a big film. It's not like a um it's not an insignificant movie in the genre, so it could also be that. Um, but also it is one of those movies. I'm sure like a lot of people have seen this movie on TV and not realized it. You know what I mean? Ages yeah. ago. And also, I I have heard this film's plot recited in so many different venues and places <laughs> by enthusiastic fans that I think there's a certain degree of cultural osmosis around it, too. Um, yeah, it, honestly, like, from an anime fan, it's kind of like Sailor Moon or Dragon Ball Z or, you know, any, any of those really great landmark shows uh, where it's like, even if you've never seen an episode, you could probably tell me generally how one goes, you know? Mm -hmm. It would feel familiar even if you've never seen one. Now, what was your impression of it? Like, did you like it? Or were you like, ah, I've seen this? Like, what was your feeling? No, I really liked it, actually. Um... I liked it because it surprised me. Any movie that surprises me, I, I always, I don't know, I, I'm delighted by that. Uh, I okay. didn't know where it was going. Its structure is really, really interesting. Like, I like that our our window into this world is the newest student of a dying master, and his previous students are all way, way deadlier and more yeah. evil than him. Um, and, like, most of the movie, like, I kept waiting for that guy to start his, like, epic quest and it takes until, like, the last act of the movie. Uh, so that was really cool. I liked that because the movie got to be a, more about this, this like, kind of procedural crime drama almost, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that was fascinating. And it, it, it knew to um, save the martial arts blowout for the end, which I thought was great because it's you're waiting for it the whole movie. And there's a lot of anticipation. It draws it out like a knife. And it's not a terribly long movie. Uh, and it gives you little tidbits of really cool martial arts here and there. And it front loads it, too. It's like, these are the five deadly venoms. This is what they can do. And it literally puts each of them on display for you. Yeah. But you don't see them get their big brawl where they're really tearing into each other until the very, very end of the movie. Yeah, it does use I a lot of restraint, I think, this movie overall. It's very it's restrained. Advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I like what you said about the final student because... It's interesting that he is the main character, but you almost don't notice him because he really is sort of more your lens into the world and the characters that you're experiencing. So it's like he's there, but he kind of fades into the background so that you can sort of see these other characters from his point of view. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's, and that, that's it's, how you see them. You see them yeah. as these these mysterious, dangerous unknowns, you know? Yeah. Um, 
it really is a great effect, and it really makes you want to see these guys fight. And so when they do fight at the end, it's it's really rewarding. It's also a great fight, for the record. Yeah, yeah, this is also, like, this is a Venom Mob movie, so these guys are, like, at a level of physical performance that if you if you watch martial arts movies, you know, over this period of time, like, I mean, you will see, like, some great physical performances as well. Like, obviously, Bruce Lee was tremendous, and there's a lot of really great uh, martial artists and mar- uh, martial art actors in the 70s, but there's something really striking when you get to the Venoms where it's like, wow, they're doing all these, like, pr- and you don't see it as much in this movie, maybe, but in l- later Venom well, movies, the, the very really last crazy. fight scene where they're, like, hanging off of the walls and fighting, like, that was pretty breathtaking. Even the, even the start of this movie, they make sure to... to showcase their act, their actor's physical prowess like uh whatever centipede is like breaking through all the plates like he was actually doing that on camera yeah. it was incredible yeah that's something that i like to tell people about like 70s movies in general but the venoms in particular is like you everything that, that their characters are doing they're doing and i mean obviously they're not like exploding chi out of their palms like and putting out <laughs> candles but like all the other stuff that they're physically doing on camera and they might use a wire or something here and there. But I mean, the flips are real. Like, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really impressive to watch them. And I, and so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those movies where it's kind of some buff dudes too. Like usually martial art actors are are pretty svelte. These dudes were built. Yeah. I think I I wish we had Dion on because she's like a venom venom nerd and she actually uh she actually interviewed um uh lu fung the guy who played centipede uh when we were doing wusha weekend and we have that interview somewhere but uh if she were on uh we would get more into this but i'm pretty sure they have like a background in like in like uh, chinese opera and stuff like that so i think a lot of it uh comes from from that background um joel are you still with us or are you uh are you in the you yeah? I had a couple of hiccups there, but I, I was being quiet, so I was just listening. okay. All right, all right. So ah, uh, I got yeah, I got a yellow spot of internet company, but but you do, but that that really is uh, physically they do stand out. I think you're right. I think it makes it different, especially like a guy like Toad, like Lo Mung, the you know the, the oh Toad. man, yeah, Toad yeah. stole the show. Yeah. Um, I was really sad that he died, but man, they did a really good job making you feel for that guy because they like. They really like when they kill him, they like have to torture him to death because he's like basically invincible. And uh, it's it's pretty brutal. Like, I yeah, the bright red blood is maybe a little bit theatrical looking, but it is pretty shocking when he's covered in all the little pinpricks of it. He's laying there in the cell and they they lay like the wet cloth on his face until he can't breathe and and smother him. Like what a tragic way for such a powerful character to, to die. Yeah, that I, I really, I mean, I didn't like that he died, but I liked how they handled it. Do you know what I mean? It had it had an effect on the, and I think picking the guy who's like the physically most powerful looking and immune to everything, and having him be the one that dies, really kind of it raises the stakes for that final fight tremendously. Um, the good news is, if you liked him, you can see movies <clears throat> like The Kid with the Golden Arm or The Crippled Avengers and other films like that, and. Kid, kid with the golden arm is like this character almost but <laughs> bad and evil um so he's like an, he's like a bandit um and it's it's a it's actually a really good movie it's a, and it's a classic kind of um escort uh plot where they're like just escorting uh you know i think i forget what the MacGuffin is but they're escorting something through the woods and he he wants to <clears throat> he wants to capture them um and it's and it and it's got a lot of the other venom mob in it um but uh, but yeah, yeah I, that, it, it made you hate Scorpion too. Like since it, he didn't like straight up fight him, he like found a way to make him weak. Those little scorpion darts. Yeah, yeah. Scorpion, Scorpion's an interesting character. So number one, um, he's obviously like very kick oriented. I think the actor's name is uh, Sun Qian. And he's very good with kicks and everything. And so as a former Taekwondo guy, like I love Scorpion just in terms of his. <laughs> I love seeing kicks because a lot of times in kung fu movies kicks take second seat to like hands you know what i mean like uh you, you know you will I see kicks like angela angela mao uses them a lot and stuff like that but yeah uh, I, I feel like the kicks a lot of times don't have a good kinetic uh look to them they're they're like yeah. centerpieces of a fight so the hands have good kinetics but yeah. then when they go to the kicks they have to stage it and block it a little differently you often see a camera angle change and yeah. there was some of that in this movie too but i gotta tell you when he threw kicks in a fight it 
felt like something that could hurt you. Yeah. That's rare, and it's nice to see. Yeah, he can do – I mean, he's doing, like, advanced kicks, like spinning hook kicks and th- things that are difficult to pull off that require not just good good legs for kicking but balance and sufficient, um, like, acrobatic skill to actually, you know, or, like, almost like a ballet. You have to kind of spin around, and that's not yeah, easy. It's, it's hard to make it look good and dangerous. He does a really good job of it. Yeah, so – but, yeah, I get what you're saying, though. He's kind of sneaky. Like, in fact, we'll, we'll get to it when we get into, like, the gaming of it. But I just liked how so much of his stuff is just scheming and being in the background. And, yep. you know, you, you, and, and even in the final fight, he just, like – did you do the Reign of Assassins with us by any chance? I can't uh, no, I think I missed Reign of Assassins. I only mentioned it because there's a character in that. It's a much later film who does something very similar to what he does in the final battle. But I just love how he like waits and you don't even yep. know like what side is he going to go on? Um, that to me, that it's just, it, it, I love how his, I, it's true for all of the characters, but you really see it with him. The, the characters personalities all like radiate through their martial arts in the fight scenes. Um, yeah, that's, that's really true. And they, his martial art is a beautiful reflection of that kind of like watch, wait, and pick your moment because he has the little he has the little scorpions that he throws, and he always waits for a really strategically deadly moment. He's always catching someone off guard, taking them at a weak point, you know. And the fact that he gets eviscerated by them at the end is is this wonderful poetic come up. It's to him. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Was there anything else about the movie that struck you? Were you? Um... Um, let me see. What else? What else is great about this movie? Um, I like that it kind of revolved around the legal proceedings. That's mm-hmm. not like, <clears throat> like you don't come to a wuxia movie, especially one with physical actors like this, with the intent where it's like, man, I really want to see the minutia of a trial and and all of all of that. You don't see a lot of like the minutia, but what I mean is like the process of the trial isn't really the forefront of your mind, but it's like the the gravity around this movie around which this movie kind of orbits. And I really like it as a centerpiece. Uh, I think they understood the inherent drama of something like the the legal justice system. And they're like, there could be surprises and twists and turns. And we could entangle that in this wonderful way with this plot of all of these these deadly venoms. Yeah. So that was really nifty. No, I, I agree. Because it kind of has like a procedural intrigue mystery element to it. You know, and that... Well, it, it means there's there's distinct phases that all of the characters go through, you know, like the crime and then the investigation and then and then like finding finding the 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 culprit and then apprehending him and then making and then you know, perverting that process and then yeah. finding someone else to bribe, you know, like having a witness come in, like all of those things, like they really they give you this this wonderful clarity of of each step of the process and they give you lots of like. Um, like structurally speaking, I'm a real, I, as a game designer, I, you know, you can't help but be kind of a structural thinker. And like, I, I can't help but look at the structure of that with envy and think like, I, that's something I would love to see in the middle of a role playing game. Like, yeah. okay, not only do we have something that's inherently dramatic going on, but like every little step of it is clearly defined and the players have a chance to change things. Yeah. Uh, it was made it really vibrant. It was a really cool little framing device. It's a useful thing to draw on when you're running a game. Like, and that sort and, and the legal system suddenly comes up and then you're like, okay, what can I go to? Oh, the five deadly venoms. I remember how it happened in the five deadly venoms. I'm going to apply that logic to the legal. You know, that sort of thing can be very handy as a GM. I find it's also good for world building because it gives you something to kind of like, you can read the books on it. And like, I found like, you know, a lot of times reading the legal procedures and all that stuff is very helpful. Uh, but there's something about seeing it on screen that makes it more, easy to wrap your head around sometimes even if it's not as accurate as what you might get in like say a history book it gives you like this visual presentation that is powerful and yeah there's a a necessity of brevity when it comes to screenwriting like you have to cut out everything that isn't going to play for the screen and for an audience and when you see it you can really easily ape it as a gm like that's what they did that's what i'm gonna do yeah Um, Really, fiction's a great like thing for any any time that you're stuck as a GM. Just find, finding a good piece of fiction, a lot of times it'll just kind of give you like a general set of instructions for here's how you present this to your players. Because yeah. I mean, you could you could have all of the actual laws and legality in your system that you wanted, and it would suck if you didn't know how to present it in a way that entertained yeah. your players. Well, I, like I can give you a perfect example. I, I don't have the book on hand, but I think it's like uh, laws and 
like I think it's like Law Law and Order and Sung Dynasty uh, name. Mm -hmm. It's a book about that thick, and I remember reading the whole thing. And I mean, I gained a lot from it. Like there was definitely like a lot of information about how magistrates operate and the way that you know, like how court is held and all that stuff. And that was all very useful. But my mind still often would go back to movies like this as mm. a, as a resource simply because it's just so much easier for your brain to draw back and pull that into a game than this really dense, heavy material that can take you longer to internalize and fully understand. Do you know what I mean? Well, and it's not quite as lived. The thing about like a movie or, or you know, something like that is that you kind of live it vicariously, at least. And yeah. And there's a lot of little things that you don't. That aren't apparent on a printed page that become much more vibrant in your mind whenever you, you see and hear it acted out that way. <clears throat> so, I guess another thing I'd like to talk about, and I know only because I only noticed it this time, because this is usually the thing I noticed the last or the least about him. Usually, you or Adam will mention it, and I never pick <laughs> up on it. Um, but I, I was kind of struck by the editing of the film this time around. Um, really? And, yeah. And, and again, my concept of editing is a little bit vague so maybe i'm using bad terminology here but but i just mean how it was sliced together how it transitioned from scene to scene i just found that it really worked for me like they just it was it was um i don't know it, it just had a uh I, I felt like that really made a difference in upping the quality of this movie in terms of like when i think back on it you know i just i just generally regard the five deadly venoms as like one of the more solid you know, old school martial arts films. And I feel like a lot of it has to do with how it was put together in the editing process in terms of just keeping the story flowing and all that. Um, again, editing is not my strong suit, so it's not like I have a colossal breakdown of the edits. I just was noticing, oh, they transitioned to this scene or they went from that to this or, you know, uh, you know, it just kind of all felt very natural. The transitions of time felt like they were done very well, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, it, it is actually pretty remarkable that there's a there's a certain energy to this movie. Uh, it's because on the one hand there's a lot of expectancy as we discussed, but on the other hand there's a sort of like tension to it mm -hmm. where you never know where this movie is going to strike from, and it, it even though you kind of know what the next scene is going to be and you have a general idea of the overall arc of the movie, it keeps finding little ways to put you on edge and surprise you, um, and it you really that kind of energy could die very quickly if they yeah. put the wrong scene in the wrong order or made a scene stretch too long or overstay its welcome there's a lot of ways you could add flab to a movie like this and they didn't they were very disciplined about not only cutting the scenes down really sharply to information you needed to know delivered in a really punchy way but also making certain that that kind of tension never deflates throughout the movie you're always kind of on tinter hooks until the very big blowout at the end which is a great uh release of all that built-up tension yeah so yeah, yeah. I, I i'm with you on that one. Oh, there was a there was a film that you and me and adam reviewed um and i should know the name this is escape me at the moment so the guy who gets like his arms uh like his hands broken and he has like this golden palm or something like that um and he, he has to go and fight in a tournament i hear i hear what it's called uh, it's it's a super famous wuxia film um it's i think it actually is about like having like the, the some sort of super hand uh because his his master teaches him this technique um i i sound like an idiot here um, no but, that's okay i'm blanking on the movie though so that's the only thing but uh i'm, I'm sure we watch we, we, you know, okay we, so let me let me bring one scene back to you really vividly all right so there's this like urn filled with hot coals that he has to slam his palms into over and over and like that's a really big part of his training and, like, it gives him the power to, like, use the palm. And it has that, like, remember that Kill Bill sound? That, that Oh, that, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's the sound of him using his yeah, palm. Okay, I okay. I'm, the, the one, okay, the um, uh, uh, King Boxer, I think, is the one. King that. Boxer, that's the one. Okay. okay. Yeah, so, as much as I love that movie, and don't get me backwards, King Boxer's amazing. Uh, I will say that, especially towards the end, there was a lot of really confusing jumps in time and direction uh, that really kind of made it muddled. Uh, okay. It wasn't anywhere near as clean as this movie is. This movie never has that. Yeah. There's never a moment where I'm really lost, like, well, what scene is this? Who are these people? Not really. The The only time it risked that was whenever we go to the old man's house, well, right before his family dies. Because so I was like, okay, who's this guy? Is this the guy that uh, our, our character is looking for? It was, but he's doomed and so is his family. They're not going to be here for long. And yeah. then we get right into the crime. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. And I think, um, I mean, Chang Che is a very, he's just a very skillful director, I think. And so, uh, you know, it shows in a movie like this. Um, one thing that I like about it too, and I like, I mean, this is true even like, you know, of a movie, another Chang Che movie, but any movie really from this period, but going back to the 60s, like uh, One Armed Swordsman. Mm. Um, movies like this, they kind of follow almost a stage logic, which I like. And I know that sometimes that's one of the things that I think makes some of these older movies harder for newer or younger people to enjoy because it is a different kind of logic. It's not it's not naturalistic. It's not historical realism. It's stage logic. So like as an example, the two Venoms that are working as constables together, that's very coincidental. That's you know, they don't even know that they're each belong to the same uh sect you know they're, they're two of the venoms that aren't supposed to know each other but they end up in this these positions together and yeah that's, and, that's a very shakespeare kind of mix up yeah know? yeah it's the kind of and again on a stage that plays yeah. you know because you want to have a very small very familiar cast for the audience you know yeah. so those little twists are about as twisty as you can get on stage yeah, and that's kind of how this functions. Also, another example, like if somebody's standing in the background and two characters are walking by and then the camera focuses on that character and then they follow them and it's done in a way where in real life they would completely see the person following them, but it's a movie and it's a stage, it's stage direct, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I just I just really like that style of filmmaking, that sort of sound stage with the sort of dramatic theater type logic and emotional energy if that makes sense um well, yeah th there's a there, there's a certain maison scene that stage acting has that film rarely does i'm not gonna say it never does but it rarely does movies like gone with the wind kind of have it um I, well one of my favorite movies um citizen kane has a little bit of it um just because of the the presence of the main actor but like these movies wuxia movies very commonly have it and i think it's just because they have that strong theater influence you know yeah so, no yeah, it's, i'm it's great. that too i yeah. i will admit it was jarring getting into wuxia i was like wow this is really artificial feeling and then you watch a few of these and you're like oh no they're doing this on purpose this this is yeah. a specific artistic choice that they have made um, and it, it feels like it's less about not knowing what they're doing and more about choosing a certain kind of cinematic language. Um, yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people bounce off of wuxia as a genre, but then the people that stick with it all kind of love it because yeah. you don't find things that are aware in that way and develop their own kind of language. Yeah, and you can't, I mean, and, and if people want something that's a little bit more real-worldy, they can watch 90s wuxia or early 2000s wuxia. There's stuff out there that has a more realistic feel to it. But obviously the old school stuff does tend to have this, uh, it's kind of like going and watching Frankenstein. You know, you watch yeah. you watch the original Frankenstein, it's got a feel, I just I just watched it again with my wife not too long ago. It's got a- It's been so long since I saw that one. It's a, it's a classic movie, but you don't go to Frankenstein and say, oh, there's too many sets, there's too many, you know, yeah. that's the point. You're watching it because the sets are part of the magic that makes it feel like a fantasy. Um, and it is magical. Like, I, my favorite scene of that movie, because I, I watched it many years ago before I was quite as sophisticated as a viewer as I am now, just because, like you said, it was a classic. I never saw it. And uh, I was watching the movie, and I read the, the novel. Uh, so me, I was coming into it looking down my nose mm -hmm. at this. But then it got to the scene where Frankenstein finally actually brings his monster to life, and the actor has a really genuine moment where he's like cackling almost to the yeah. point of sobbing because the madness has overtaken him. And uh, man, that really got me. I was like genuinely moved like, oh, God, that guy really is crazy, huh? Yeah, that, um, that, that, I mean, that's a classic moment too. that performance in that scene is just classic. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I'm with you. And I, and I read the book as well, too. I probably saw the movie first, but I read the book. Um, I think I read it like my freshman year of high school is when I remember reading Frankenstein. And uh, and then that obviously affected all my subsequent viewings of Frankenstein. But I just I just love I don't know. I love films that are sort of that capture that. There's another movie that came out in 2015 called The Swordsman, which you might have seen. I don't remember. But that it was directed by Derek Yee, who starred in a number of Choi Yuen movies. And he did it with the intent. It's it's based on the same material, I think, as Death Duel. And the whole purpose was he wanted to 
like use modern CGI and stuff to kind of create the same effect that Choi Yuan was going for, except Choi Yuan was doing it on a, on a sound stage and he's using CGI and the effect is very beautiful. Do you know what I mean? If, if you, and, and you know, I'm not a fan. What was that? I'm going to check that out. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, well, it, it's it's called Swordmaster. I'm sorry, I think it's Sword. I'll, have, I'll look it up. But it was when it came out, it was pretty significant, and I I did a bunch of reviews of it and all this stuff. I'd be happy to watch it again. I think it's a gorgeous movie, um, and I don't really like CGI. But the but the but because he kind of was like, I'm going to skillfully use CGI to to capture what Shou Yuan was going for using sound stages. I thought that was like a brilliant move. Um, it, 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 it's almost like watching a box sheet film. Do you know what I mean? It's like that kind of, oh, you know? Man, uh, man, we uh, I, I, we need to watch a couple of box sheet films of this podcast. He was a huge influence on me whenever I was uh, putting out the post-apocalyptic world of Lone Wolf Fist. Because um, I saw his film Wizards when I was but a child, which was, I was in the intended audience range, and man, no human being is ever ready to see Wizards. Yeah, I haven't seen Wizards since I was a kid, actually. Oh, it's great. You really ought to revisit it. It's it's actually genuinely very good. It, it It's boxy, so there's a lot of, uh, I want almost want to call like a lot of non-sequitur scenes where they just kind of happen because that's what the people in the studio made that day, yeah. I guess. And he's like, I got to get it to 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's part of the charm. It, it's almost like reading an extended issue of Zap Comics. My, and, uh, my- my favorite is Fire and Ice. That's the one that I like. Oh, Fire and Ice is awesome. Although it's almost, it, it was almost ruined for me because uh, I saw a picture of a guy, you know, the guy with the, the panther hat, the really terrifying uh, deuteragonist to that movie. Or uh, what, what is he? He's like a dual villain. Anyway, he's a really nasty a piece of work. One of the reasons to watch the film, I saw someone who just put their black cat over their face so the cat's eyes, where their eyes would be, and it looked almost exactly like him. Okay. And I was like, oh, no. But uh, but anyways, I think just getting it back to the, um, the Five Deadly Venoms, we should probably move on to the uh, mechanical aspect. Yes, my the favorite game, part. The gaming of uh, Five Deadly Venoms. So I'm curious, what were your thoughts when you saw this movie? Like, in terms of Lone Wolf Fist and just how you would, how you would do it. Man, I, first of all, I love the legal system. I, I was talking about that earlier, but like that was a really great way to frame the drama of the film. Mm-hmm. I think that you could really easily make a legal system that was it just it happened in what are effectively scenes that kind of coincide with the stages of a trial. Um, I think that's a really good way because it's it's hard to know when you're a GM when to end a given affair and kind of skip to the next part and because you're doing it collaboratively with the players like what yeah. they want to do in a scene is going to determine like the direction that it goes and also the next logical connecting thing that happens afterwards. It's easy in a dungeon where it's all about opening and closing doors, you yeah. know. But it's harder to find those doors whenever you're talking about a, like a, a longer temporal event. Yeah. Like, is it okay uh, for me to elapse time? That's that. Right. I, yeah. And and to what degree should I elapse it? You know, I mean, like it's it would be boring to sit here and actually go through seven hours of real life trial with the players. But at the same time, you want to make sure that any part of that trial that they want to pull out and pay attention to is there for them to do that with. So putting it into stages like this means that individual scenes can have a pretty clear goal for the players. And whether or not they succeed or fail at that goal can happen uh, really concretely. Like, there's there's like this wonderful scene where um, uh, the, the bad guys have gotten to the key witness, the only real witness to these crimes, and they've intimidated him. And so he's already given his testimony, and he's drawn up to give his testimony again for their patsy, that there's, that's gonna, like, uh, which is Toad, who's going to take the fall for Centipede's crime. And there's a wonderful moment in that trial where there's a little bit of question about whether or not they're going to carry that off. And ultimately, the magistrate is just like, yeah, okay, that's what he said. It's the guy without a beard. All right, uh, arrest him. We're going to torture him until he confesses. We can't exceed him without a confession. Um, I love that because it's a clear moment where that scheme succeeded. And now we're moving on to the next part. Yep. And then they even... He's dead, and they, or he's not dead, but he's passed out, and they just have they just move his hand to do the signature. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Uh, again, and players respond to that. Human beings have this wonderfully visceral sense of justice, um, and players get very emotionally attached to certain NPCs. So you can bet if you if you'd pulled that with a beloved NPC, the characters would be out for 
blood come next yeah. session. And the characters of this movie are, too. I like that last little bit where the the two remaining Venoms are talking about, like, okay, do we go kill the Magistrate now to make sure there's justice done? <laughs> and the older, wiser one is like, uh, nah, let's not kill him. Uh, let's be honest. Magistrates are all the same. He might get replaced with somebody worse. Let's just move on. Let's just that was actually, yeah, that was a cool moment, actually, because it, it, it's sort of a little unexpected. Obviously, it might also be done for time because the movie's coming to an end. They don't necessarily want to have them go deal with the magistrate. It reminded but, me of Hero. Remember the, like, the ultimate scene in Hero where he's got his technique, he's in killing range, and he's like, well, actually, the Emperor, like, what's, what's going to happen if I kill him? That's not going to help anything. That doesn't fix things. Um, it's it's a wonderfully weird moving moment, uh, and it's not quite as epic in this movie. They kind of hand wave it. They're like, ah, nah, he's it's fine. It'll be fine. Uh, but I like it. I like it because it felt like a genuine conclusion they might reach. You know, is yeah, this guy yeah. worth killing? Eh. <laughs> For me, what I was thinking was um, number one is sort of like, okay, how do I do this as an adventure versus how do mm. I do this mechanically? And so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll link to it on the blog. I had a, um, I, I ended yeah. up making signature he did a post. I, Give me the, the quick rundown of that post. I'm going to go read it after this, but I haven't had a chance to get I'm really time strong. Um, I mean, so what I do initially, I was like, okay, I'm going to make a bunch of new signature abilities. Um, but this all started because somebody asked, can you do the five deadly venoms in the, in the game and righteous blood ruthless blades? And I was like, well, I mean, it's obviously an influence, but I haven't really like tried to construct, these characters in the game i know that they uh, played a role uh, well, so, so. yeah it's that's always a weird experience as a game designer whenever you, you're inspired by something you make your game based on the inspiration but then later on you go back and you're like wait can i actually make that exact inspiration yeah. yes or no and sometimes the answer surprises you well in this case what i found was and again it's it's all if this were ogre gate it would be different because ogre gate has distinct techniques and those would uh it would be more of an issue with those if there wasn't mm -hmm. anything in the mix that would emulate the movie. Righteous Blood with Blade has broader signature abilities. But what yeah. I was able to do is for Centipede, I came up with like, okay, the recommended signature abilities, heart piercing finger, and you just reskin it to be like, um, what is it? Rib breaking palm or whatever it was that they, you know, they called his, uh, his lethal move. Um, yeah, that's you know, pretty close though. Yeah. Yeah. You get a Jan's enduring fists, golden crab style, uh, a new tech, a new signature ability I made called Martial Arts Melee, which I'll talk about. And then for counter, I gave him Shadow Fist, which I wasn't too happy with, but I think there were a few others that were possible contenders as well. And I was able to do this with each of the characters. The one that was the toughest was the final student, um, uh, which I still was able to do, but I feel like I could have done, if I had made the characters all from the ground up, it would have obviously been easier. Yeah. Uh, I, I would struggle because we don't have a lot of data with that guy. He knows the weak points of specifically yep. those five Venom styles. Yep. And he doesn't really like that's his real claim to fame is like, oh, well, I can figure out their weak points. But like he doesn't have anything outside of that, really. And we don't really see him fight until well, that last scene. So what we know, and this is why it would have given me trouble to do him and, and do it exactly as it was in the movie. I'm going to try to make an attempt that actually perfectly replicates it by making new signature abilities but um the problem is the master says they've all like reached like the master level of their <laughs> styles and you've only got like the basics of those styles so to me that yeah. meant in terms of the game mechanics of my game that means that each guy has like a three-tiered style do you know what i mean and the final student only has the first tier and they all have access to the full suite of style things in their signature ability yeah and here's the thing from a dramatic standpoint that's really fun yeah. from a mechanical designing a game standpoint you really don't want to do that you know you really don't want the first level of a style to be able to compete really at all yeah. with the max level of the style <clears throat> like although i will say the movie does kind of account for that by forcing him to ally with one of the venoms to sort of boost his power level in the fight but yeah, it's, it's that's the tricky element. Another another really big hurdle is the toad invincibility, because and that's one that's. I mean, you've seen this in other Wuxia movies that have come up. So this uh, technique, I've had a lot of players ask for. It's sometimes called Golden Bell technique. Or, yeah, I want to be indestructible. Yeah. Is is the technique, and it's like, dude, you understand that like, <laughs> like that's gonna ruin the game, right? Yeah. If you can't get hurt, that and even the movie is like. 
yeah, this guy's broken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of him, right? He's just, and he's just this force. Like, if he were a bad guy, imagine how destructive he would be because oh, he could yeah. just walk, you know, and, uh, and granted, he has a weakness. And so you can incorporate that mechanically. But the question then becomes how much does the weakness balance out what you're yeah, giving I, the guy? Um, that's the total thing, like, invulnerability. It, Versus if they specifically attack you in the eardrum, you know, you're gonna, it, it, it's, uh, and, and, and it's sort of weird because the weakness is either the, the problem with the weakness is it's too weak or it's too strong. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's binary. It's all or nothing. You're yeah. either invincible or you're <laughs> completely vulnerable. Your power yeah. doesn't work at all. So there, there's a lot game-wise that's unsatisfying about that. It would be fun. It's a fun heel move, you know? Like, when the bad guy has that, it's like, okay, now the fun for the players is figuring out the puzzle bad guy. But, like, yeah. if you're the puzzle bad guy, the GM has to pretend they don't know your weakness. That's not really very fun. You know, for anyone involved, because if they don't pretend good enough, then your weakness gets exploited by everybody. And if they do pretend good enough, then you don't have a weakness. Yeah. I, don't give me that tightrope to walk, man. That sucks. What I did was I gave him signature abilities that gave him a really strong, like sort of, you know, iron style martial arts that also kind of buffered his defenses a little bit. And then gave him counters that were sort of those style counters where it's like, you know, I'm iron body type of things. I, you know, the, I think the counters I gave him were um, golden armor defense and iron armor defense. So the two, the two counters in the game that are obviously meant to capture something in this ballpark, um, but they're nowhere near what he has. They're not vulnerability. Um, I, what I'm thinking is I made this and then maybe for shits and giggles, I'll make like, okay. <laughs> Let's do the broken version of this, where we make we make Toad the way he present he presents in the movie, and uh, we'll see what it feels like for people to play a game like that. And uh, um, yeah. you know, but uh, but it's tricky. I think I, that's something that comes up a lot in Wuxia because all, another thing that comes up in Wuxia is this guy is like the best at everything ever, and nobody can defeat him. And and sometimes yeah. you get players who are like, I want to be that guy. And so it's like, well, how do you, how do you do it, that? It, uh, golden, was it Golden Swallow who did that? Uh, no, oh, Silver, yeah, um, Silver yeah, Rock did that. Um, yeah, Silver Rock from the Golden Swallow movie. Well, um, here's the thing, though, and I, I've I've had some time to think about Silver Rock. Power, power tier wise, I like that idea both dramatically and even gameplay wise. I don't think it's beyond the pale to have guy who is just straight up better than other guys. That mm -hmm. can be really cool, to a point. Uh, a lot of times, though, even without trying, that can hog a lot of the spotlight. Just because, like, I'm fine with being a supporting character as in a in a in a game. Like, I've played a lot of role playing games where I'm I'm not the main guy. I remember that uh, what was that uh, playtest we did where where I was like a courtesan and oh, all yeah. of my powers couldn't help anything, and yeah. we all had a blast with that character because it wasn't about being the most powerful guy. It was about being entertaining, and I was enormously yeah. entertaining. Um, yeah, yeah. In an uh, RP heavy, it, it almost doesn't matter, really. Because, oh, yeah. You know. Well, and especially in that game, I think we did have one guy that was built really, really strong. Like, mm -hmm. he was, he knew how to use the system to his advantage. Um, and everyone had a good time with it. Uh, but it, we were all experienced role players. I mean, like, you and me are game designers. I'm pretty sure everyone in that group designed something or co-designed it. I think we had a couple of like, Ogre Gate designers in there, too. So yeah. And so we we knew how to play to the spirit of the table really, really well. And in the hands of like less experienced role players, it can be frustrating whenever your character is straight up not as good as someone else. Like that's a real flaw that actually significantly hurts a lot of systems. Well, I guess you know what that is too. That's also hinges there's a few things there. There's play style, but there's also how it's achieved. So like in a game where there's a random element to character creation that allows for different power spikes. Um, that's not as much of a problem because it's sort of like everybody has the same random chance of being the really awesome guy, but not everybody gets to be because they don't. And, and again, there's a dividing line in the hobby where some people like that, some people don't. But I think if you do it as a random thing, that can sometimes work. Um, yeah, I, 
there's a random uh, random charts for character gen in my game that give you different perks. And sometimes you roll really high and get a really cool perk. It's not game-breaking, but it is definitely a, a, a advantage over people that don't roll that well. But I, I feel like because it's random, there's some appeal to that. You know, where it's like, well, some, some parts of your character are out of your control. And that can be a lot of fun. The, the unknown sometimes really adds a great spice to a character and makes you play it in a way you, that surprises you. I love that. So. Well, and, and to be fair, like it is a part of the genre. Like a lot of wuxia movies, a lot of wuxia stories have, especially like the Long stuff, like the protagonists usually are really incredible. Um, there's often a guy who rises above the other characters like the Jimmy Wang Yu character from Golden Swallow. Um, where they're just better than them. I once had conversations with a number of my players, and there was a player who really wanted us to incorporate this element of Wuxia stories into the campaign. And the best thing I could come up with was, I was like, okay, we'll come up with a secret Kung Fu genius uh, mechanic. Kind of like, you know, like secret Kung Fu genius from like uh, Kung Fu Hustle type of a thing. Oh, yeah, that was really great. Yeah. Where, where somebody unbeknownst to any unbeknownst to everybody else at the table is, you know, has has this untapped martial arts talent that will bear fruit over the course of the campaign, uh, <laughs> and that can be determined randomly at the start of the campaign. There will be like one kung fu genius per campaign type of thing, and it can you know, and, and I forget what we did. I think what we did was we rolled secretly, and then I allowed them to have like more techniques or techniques that were more effective. I forget exactly what it was, but there was some mechanical heft to it and it can work. But I mean, everybody has to, everybody has to sign on to a concept like that. Do you know what I mean? That's the, that's the issue. Um, and yeah, getting buy-in from all the players for having one character that's more powerful. Usually it works. Um, I actually ran a game, an Adon Wusha game, a game of Werewolf the Forsaken for a year, and we just had one player that was just way better at working in that system than anyone else. But there is an understood hierarchy to the pack pecking order in that game, and he wound up being the alpha because he would constantly lead from the front and acted heroically. So like everyone was like, yeah, of course he's the leader, he's the yeah. best. And that wound up just kind of being the way that game naturally fell out. Sometimes it'll happen. But I, and, and the other thing, too, is in, in relation to the Five Deadly Venoms, one of the problems with taking that route is the character who's kind of like, invi- he's not the best, but the character who's the most invincible is the one who dies. So yep. <laughs> it becomes, a, you know, but uh, the other way you can handle it, too, is I was thinking, well, who are the players in a Five Deadly Venoms campaign, right? Are they the Five Deadly Venoms? Or what I was leaning towards was they're all the final student. You know, you have a party... Yep that takes the role of the final student, I think would make It'd the most be sense. Really easy to do too, because you just give each one of them the weaknesses of a couple of the venoms. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's actually brilliant. And I feel like that's the best place for it game wise. Um, if you're the, it, it, a late term campaign, you could play the five deadly venoms as the venoms, you know, you, this is like your last real hurrah. Um, but I feel like, yeah, the way you'd want to game this for most the most part, you'd want the you'd want them wheeling and dealing to figure out which venom they could trust to beat the yeah. other ones, because then it's a puzzle, you know. Yeah, and 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 also it's, it's a brilliant premise for an adventure, like just the, the mm-hmm. idea of like, okay, your master is like, you have to go and find these these uh, former students of mine, but I don't know their, you know, I don't know what names they're using. There's this other contact that might be around, but I don't know what name he's using either. And so there's, you know, it just, it's a really cool premise for like a kind of investigative Wuxia mini campaign, maybe. Oh, it's brilliant because especially if that's not the only thing going on in your Wuxia city, the players are just going to be like tailing all these different leads and learning all of these interesting like possibly not even connected threads of these martial artists living there. That's beautiful, man. I love it. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it really can has legs for a campaign or for an adventure. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Now, if you need to start a Wuxia campaign, actually, when I uh, run Righteous Blood Ruthless Blades here in the not too distant future, I think that's what I'm just gonna do. I'm just gonna prep like a little city with all kinds of cool kung fu stuff going on. Because uh, I've, I've even got like a Lady 87 and all kinds of great stuff I could put in there. Um, and then I'll just uh, 
I'll just do the five deadly venoms. There'll be one master that'll unite the party right away. There'll be the new, like the new deadly venoms. They're like, okay, we did some bad stuff, and they're going to do more evil stuff, and it's up to you to stop them. I'm old and dying, so I can't do it. Yeah. Your job, go and find them. Oh, and I don't know who they are, and I I only know kind of where they are. Mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I mean, it's um, yeah, I think it could definitely work. Uh, and I guess the other question would then be. Okay, with the Venoms, like, obviously this is going to vary from system to system, but, how, like, if there's, like, a level mechanic, what level would each yeah. of the Venoms be? If, you know, like, that sort Oof. of thing. Um, yeah, and that's the thing. Because the movie is like, oh, they're Grandmasters or whatever. Uh, I feel like, okay, so it, it's hard to get the broth exactly right. Even D&D, with all of its faffing about with challenge ratings, really doesn't know how a fight's going to go until the yeah. dice hit the table, right? Uh, you can kind of estimate it, but that's about as close as you can get. Um, so max level, no, I don't want to put them at the max level. I want to put them somewhere deadly, but possible to kill, like okay. on an individual thing. So like if the party, because I feel like if that guy would have jumped any one of them, he might have had a pretty rotten, but still an extant chance of beating it, like maybe 10%. He, he'll, the fight will go his way, especially if he, like, sneaks up on them or if he hits them with their weakness right away. 10%. I get, I'll give him 10%. Maybe not against Toad. Toad would have creamed him. But anybody else, 10%, sure. But if they... They should have a really big chance of success to doing things that would get them closer to finding a Venom that'll help them. Because, like, what did he do? Like, he was able to act like a beggar and charm people and sneak around and get information, you know? Like, he was able to do that stuff very well. So understand that your players are should not be going up and just punching whatever martial artist they find because they're going to get wrecked that way. It, you might learn a couple of tough lessons, but for the most part, I think that would be a foolish way to approach it. They should be keeping an ear to the ground, wheeling and dealing, trying to play the social angle uh, mm-hmm. so they can get one of these guys on the, or more on their side. Uh, I, I think that's the stronger campaign and the, the cl- more clever way of going about it. So yeah, um, uh, th- each individual one of them should be in that ten percent range, where like ten percent yeah. of the chance, ten percent chance you can drop them. Usually, you're gonna get wailed on. You, you will probably either die or need to run away and probably lose a character or so. Because like I really want them to be scared of these dudes. Yeah. Well, also that's, having that's my having um. If you make all of the party effectively the final student, that also changes things because now you have, like, instead of one final student, you got five or four, whatever the number is. And yep. so that would be a factor, too, depending on how you want to, you know, uh, manage True. things. Like, uh, uh, And it also, it's unlikely they'll have one big climactic scene where they fight almost all of them. But what they will probably do is pick them off. You know, they will find yep. one person to help them or, or maybe two people, and they will choose their targets uh, and they'll stake it out, and they'll ambush them. And that's that's the smarter way to play it. Yeah, I, I think that. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention, too, was um, there was a mechanic I came up with called Martial Arts Melee. Um, yeah, tell you know me how, like, Well, you know how in, um, in this movie, in a lot of wushu and kung fu movies, there's this moment where they just kind of bust out, and everybody starts fighting, right? Like, it's just yep. kind of like, it just becomes like a mass dance of fighting or something. Um, and you can see each of the Venoms are fully capable of dealing with multiple opponents. So I thought that it would be kind of cool. I mean, there are signature abilities in the book that allow you to attack multiple people, but I wanted to make one specifically on what I saw in this film. So this one is you are skilled at rushing in to face many opponents at once in a chaotic melee or brawl. Whenever you fight multiple aton- opponents at close range, you can attack up to one level worth of characters per your level in melee and unarmed combat with characters that have no level functioning as half a level for the purposes of calculating the attack. So that would mean a ninth level character can attack nine level one characters, or he could attack three level three characters or 18 unleveled characters. Jesus. Um, so, but what I liked about that was it allows the 18 is obviously a ridiculous number, but that works for the mooks, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to blaze through all these nobodies. Yeah, you you could. I think those are right about the numbers of all the guys who try to take in Toad and utterly failed to. Mm-hmm. And I also like that scene because, like, 
he's fighting mooks and he's he's wading through them and then one of the venoms joins the fight and suddenly the character of the fight changes yeah um which it would uh and i think that you again masterfully made a made a kung fu rule here that captures the feeling that you should have and, and the dynamic that should be at play i love when that happens um it's really really well done yeah, so that is, you know, that was the one new, there was another new mechanic too. I made one for, um, you know, when he kiss him in the ears with two curved blades, I, yeah. I couldn't resist that I made one based on that. Too. <laughs> okay, okay, tell me uh, that one. Uh, so that's based on, a, so there's an existing technique in the game called crescent moon style, where you throw a, like a crescent blade and it kind of curves in the air. So mm-hmm. I came up with crescent moon king, which it, it uses that as a prereq. You have to have crescent moon style, but then once you have that, you can then throw two blades at a curved angle so they hit the single target from two different directions. Um, and I think it imposes like a minus 1d10 to counter attempts. Um, and you're also able to make separate damage rolls for each one, which kind of beefs it up a little bit. Um, oh, that is pretty BB. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that was the, you know, just, just to give a scorpion-like character that use of the little, you know, scorpion darts that he was using. Um, but uh, and and again, I I I was fudging it a little because I couldn't remember offhand if if uh, if the two blades actually hit him at the same time or not, or if they were thrown at different moments. But I like the idea of being able to get him all in one. Well, that's and that again, the sort of theatrical nature we were talking about, like that doesn't make any physical sense. Yeah. But there, there's something flashy and and hyper particular about that kind of logic where that not only is a move that could exist, but that it would have such an important strategic use, mm. you know? Um, that's one of the things that's really charming about any kind of kung fu movie, not even just wuxia. Like, anime does that, mm. too. Where, like, if you ever watch JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, they always have, like, these mm. these weird moves they decide to do. Mm. Um, and they're, they're hyper-specific to the point of being, like, kind of insane. And yet... They keep you guessing. Uh, it, it adds a wonderful variety to the whole program. So, yeah, it, it, it again beautifully captured there. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And so, uh, I think we're also at the end of the show. I uh, oh yeah, I, we're right. Yeah, I have to. Uh, well, I have to head out, and uh, I I pick up my wife every night, and so we scheduled this before I have to leave to pick her up, and I just got the uh, uh, the summons <laughs> to to go do so. Uh, but I think we we pretty much covered everything. So I think we're good. We've I think gone so. For I'm, I'm pretty happy with this one. Man, it feels nice to be back on Wuxia, Wuxia Workshop. Yeah, we'll have uh, to maybe... It's been too long. If we do it again, maybe we'll try that Swordmaster movie or something like that. But um, you know, I, I think that would be an interesting choice. Um, but yeah, so I guess we'll, uh, we'll head out. And until next time, we will talk to you later. <laughs>